Tonight's reading comes from John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. And now we do need you. We need you as your people to hear your word, to have it pierce our hearts and to open our eyes. And Father, now I need you as your messenger to speak through me. Uh, Father, we pray that anything that I say that is not of you would be quickly forgotten. And so we pray now that you might speak to us, your people, through your word, by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You be seated. It's good to see all of you. It's good to see many of you, many of you tonight that I've never met or I met before the service this evening. So if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Clint, one of our other staff pastors, is out of town this weekend and the next couple. Uh, So thankful for Ryan uh, to lead through our service. And then uh, our music team this evening, uh, Matt Jones is out of town. Kyle, Michelle's husband, was planning on leading and then like infection invaded his entire head this week. So Michelle just jumped in and has done just such a marvelous job for us this evening. What a church we have here, and I'm so thankful to God for all of you. Well, a few weeks ago, when we were approaching the crucifixion in John's gospel, I told you that we were getting to the climax of the book. The the wave was beginning to crest, preparing to crash, and that's true. But for John, the crucifixion and the resurrection aren't disconnected events. They are the same event accomplishing the same purpose, bringing life by the Spirit through the forgiveness of sins, bringing Jesus's sheep into the fold of God. So while it was climaxing then, it's still not quite done yet. So the wave is beginning to pass by, the water is beginning to calm, but now John is just going to straight up tell us at the end of this chapter what you heard Emily just read. The whole reason that the whole, this whole thing, uh, this whole book was about, why in the world he thought it was so important to write 21 chapters, and honestly, why we thought it'd be a good idea to spend about 37 weeks through this gospel. Spoiler, verse 31. 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the reason. This is the climax of the book. But it's starting to settle. We'll get there to verse 31 by the end of this evening. Last week, we saw how the resurrection confronts and then speaks to our sorrow. That the risen Christ who himself suffered, he both sees and empathizes with our sadness, with our pain, with our weakness. And yet knowing that he sees and cares, knowing that he lives, and that we share in a resurrection like his, this makes all the difference. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It makes life worth the living just because he lives. Well, this week, John isn't just retelling what happened next in the story. There's many things that happened within the week that we see here that John doesn't describe. He isn't just retelling historical events. The risen Christ is now going to confront two other kinds of people. Now in the second half of this this chapter, he's going to confront fearful ones and he's going to confront unbelieving ones. So we'll just see this play out tonight under two headings about how the resurrection speaks to our own fear and to our own doubt as well. So we'll see this played out in the, the resurrection for our fear and the resurrection for our unbelief. Okay, so in verse 19, John writes, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So it's, it's that same first Easter Sunday, the evening of the first day of the new calendar of reality. And the disciples have locked themselves inside of a room because they're afraid. It's the first day after the Sabbath. So, like, the Jewish authorities wouldn't have been able to go out and make arrests during that day. So they are now thinking on this new day, on this Sunday, like, round two is about to start. Like, the same temple guards who perhaps showed up at the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Now, any moment, they're going to show up at their door to take them out. If they killed him, they'll kill us, perhaps, they're thinking. And Jesus essentially even said so much. This would happen in chapter 16. And all of this, presumably, with Peter and John in the room. Peter and John who had seen the empty tomb and John who believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Perhaps Peter and John aren't quite sure what the implications of the resurrection were going to be for their lives. Maybe, maybe now if Jesus is alive, we'll just start following him around again. Maybe he'll just start teaching again. Perhaps we'll go to a new part of the country, a new part of the world. And maybe he won't be as abrasive and confrontational this time around and get himself killed again. They don't realize that the calendar has turned. So then evidently out of nowhere, Jesus just appears in the room. The text doesn't explicitly say this. It could be like the door miraculously opened or something. Jesus like picked the lock supernaturally, but it appears he just like walked through the walls. He's like, he teleported or something. This is like superhero stuff. A new reality of the calendar means there's a newness of the Lord of that calendar of reality. He's no longer robed in frailty and in weakness. He is the glorified and risen creator, the Christ amongst his disciples. And yet he hasn't just risen from the dead just to show off his amazing power. He's not just like walking around like Iron Man or something. Like, look how awesome I am. He appears and then he says, peace be with you. Now on the one hand, he just appeared out of nowhere and he said hello. This is just a Middle Eastern standard greeting. It was then and it still is today. Perhaps you go to Israel or you 
or perhaps in the Middle East, and you hear the, Arab, the Arabic equivalent of just shalom aleichem, which means peace be with you. This is just the way you say hi when you're passing two people on the street. But on the other hand, while he's saying hello to his disciples, Jesus appears to them and he's saying, mission accomplished. He even reiterates to them after he shows them his hands and his side, it's really him, it's really me, back from the dead, and he says, again, peace be with you. He's not just saying hi again. The shalom, the peace that humanity had experienced in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, the perfect friendship with God, an existence marked not by sin and the accompanying fear of God and shame of hiding, but only of joy, only of flourishing. This kind of shalom that was lost when humanity ruined the entire thing, when we made this world into a world where God's goodness and his glory is minimized, where his word is subject to our opinions. We use people for our own means instead of serving them selflessly. We, we murder people with our hands or within our hearts now. The peace is gone. Systems and governments and policies and rulers now enslave and oppress the weak. The peace is gone. And most of all, we, collectively as the world, but collectively made up of as individuals, we stand at odds with God, opposed to him, refusing him and his rule in our lives, unwilling to or perhaps even afraid, afraid of this God to approach him because this part of my life is particularly too sinful or too broken or too dark. And so in the midst of all of that, Jesus, the creator of light, comes forth out of the darkness. He's come forth out of the darkness of the grave, out of the place of death and the place of our condemnation and curse, and he appears out of nowhere and he says, peace, peace be with you. The shalom that I spoke with my very mouth into creation to create all of this. I'm now speaking again into a new creation and into a new humanity. A new humanity who has their sins forgiven. A new humanity who no longer has to fear the anger of God against our sin. Because Jesus has experienced it for us. So this evening, as you sit in fear, perhaps not like explicit, trembling fear, but all of us, to some degree or the other, experience fear and a lack of peace. A fear, perhaps, that you're too sinful. Jesus is here speaking to you, saying, peace be with you. Fear that you didn't live up to God's expectations for your life this week. Peace be with you. Fear that you'll just continue on in loneliness. Peace be with you. Fear that your coworkers or neighbors will reject you for of how you speak about the gospel to them. Peace be with you. Fear that you might lose your job, or perhaps you've recently lost your job, or you're stuck in a job that you don't particularly enjoy. Peace be with you. The Lord is with you. Or maybe the crushing weight of social or work expectations is just getting too heavy. And the idea of waking up in the morning and going to work, the anxiety is mounting. And the Lord Jesus, who sees you and is with you, peace be with you. Maybe you're afraid at night, afraid of the world outside. 
afraid of death even, peace be with you. The risen Christ, the Lord of light and of creation, he sees you, he knows you, he's with you. Or as Charles Spurgeon once said, listen to this, child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you. And we know this, not just because of one greeting that he gives to his disciples this Sunday evening, but because of what happens next. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. All of the promises that Jesus had made of the Spirit throughout this book, and especially that we saw over and over and over again in chapters 14 through 17, they're coming true. He is not leaving his sheep to just fend for themselves. He is filling them with the very presence and life of God. Now, as amazing as this story is, especially for those of you who have, whenever you read this story like I do, the picture of Aslan like breathing on statues that are then coming to life. And I think there's a lot of that going on here with this continued new creation theme. Just as the breath, the spirit of God hovered over creation and uh, made a world out of nothing, now the breath of God is coming again. But wait, you may be thinking, I've read the book of Acts, right? Some of you are thinking this, right? And the spirit there comes in chapter 2 at Pentecost. John is sorely confused at the timeline here, isn't he? Well, there have been tons of explanations for what's going on here. But let me tell you this. John is certainly not aware of Pentecost. He was there, right? What we're reading here in John 20 is likely a symbolic and perhaps even progressive giving of the Spirit. We saw this kind of thing already when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And as as Peter is protesting that the Lord would would wash his feet, Jesus told Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now we saw then and we know now that Jesus wasn't meaning, unless you let me put your foot in this basin and like clean up your feet, you're not going to inherit my kingdom. The foot washing was a symbolic pointing forward toward the spiritual washing of the blood of the lamb on Peter's behalf. So John here again is throwing the story forward forward with Jesus's breath, which may have even began with his breathing out on the cross in chapter 19 as he gave up his spirit. And if that's the case, as one commentator says, we might think in terms of a progressive gift. Listen to this. As a dying gasp on the cross becomes a life-giving breath here in this room with his disciples, which then swells to a mighty wind on the day of Pentecost. But by beginning the work of filling his people here, now after he has filled them, then he sends them out to continue on in the mission that the Father has sent him in. Even telling them in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this sounds very similar to what he told the disciples in Matthew 18 in describing the process of church discipline, but here the focus isn't on Jesus' delegated authority on earth as it was in Matthew, but here instead on Jesus' delegated mission on earth. Just as the Father sent him, now he sends his disciples in the mission of forgiveness. The disciples were empowered by the same spirit that empowered him to now walk out of that room on the first Easter Sunday. And in the same way, he empowers us, his modern day disciples, to walk out of this building on this Sunday evening to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. 
It is God who forgives. We don't walk out of here and have the ability to forgive people for their sins. It's God who forgives them by giving the Spirit to them as well. But it is through the disciples' sentness. They're being wrapped up in not only the life of God, as we saw in John 17, but in the very mission of God. Now, as his little mobile temples scattered all over the world, filled with his presence, because of that, now the world actually is confronted by the reality of God, confronted with their need for forgiveness. If we withhold the offer of forgiveness, Jesus is saying, how will the world know that it needs it? So it's not just that God forgives and then he gives us peace. He gives us this existential feeling of peace that we then sit on, in the, on the sofa under a warm blanket and just, just, just melt in the peace of God or something. No, he confronts our fear. He turns it on its head. He transforms it into courage and then he sends it out with a purpose. The darkness out there is not something to be afraid of. Instead, it is something that is inviting. The darkness is inviting the light to come into. We sang about this in a mighty fortress is our God. We tremble not for him. We have nothing to be afraid of if the Lord is with us. And so this changes and transforms the way that we think about the hospitality of our dinner tables about thoughtful questions that we have with our coworkers during a coffee break or a lunch hour, and certainly regular prayer. But the world that Jesus sends us out into is a world that is full of unbelief, which now gets us into our second half with Thomas, the resurrection not only for our fear, but for our unbelief. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a real bummer for Thomas that this episode so defines him that I think maybe like when we meet him in heaven or in the new creation, we'll say, hey, Doubting Thomas. And you're like, come on, man. It was like, it was like one week of my life. Uh, I mean, after all. He supposedly went and planted like dozens and dozens of churches in India, so church history tells us. But seriously, like it's like a cruel twist of fate for this brother, that he was like not there that first Sunday. Like the disciples, like they sent him out to go get the pizza, and then he wasn't there when Jesus appeared out of nowhere, and he missed it. And now forevermore, he's doubting Thomas. Like I think this could have just as easily, easily been doubting Philip or doubting Matthew. But anyway, still, this is all according to God's sweet, sweet providence so that 2,000 years of Christians would benefit from Thomas's unbelief, would then benefit from his belief and benefit from the Lord's grace throughout all of this. So here we are, later that evening, Jesus has come and spoken peace to the disciples and he's gone. Thomas is back and despite the eyewitness testimony from his, from his best friends, likely some of the people that he trusted more in the entire world, he doesn't believe them. Like the others are there saying, we just saw the Lord. We saw his hands in his side. And he's like, yeah, I don't buy it. He's dug in. Unless he sees and touches for himself, he won't believe. This is the exact situation of an assistant manager at the Sprint store that I had when I worked at, it was my seminary job for like two years. 
this assistant manager, Irv, he was a thoughtful guy. We talked about the gospel a lot. And I felt like with all of his major objections to Christianity, I had a decent answer. So finally, like after a year, I was like, Irv, man, like, what would it take for you to come to faith in Christ? And he was like, he, he said, I need verifiable video evidence. Like to see the, what I know is the very dead Jesus to sit up in the tomb and walk out. Then I'll believe. I was like, dude, like 2,000 years ago, there's no videos. He was like, yeah, I know. That's my point. Irv and Thomas are like, they're like, picks or it didn't happen kind of guys, right? Uh, even worse, Thomas is, I need to touch it or it didn't happen. So eight days later, this next Sunday, another pointer toward the new creation, uh, the first day of the new calendar, the Lord's Day, it's the exact same scene. The disciples, they're inside, they're locked in, Perhaps another indicator that they haven't fully received the, the Spirit yet. They aren't experiencing the kind of boldness that we'll see them uh, go out with throughout the book of Acts. But it's in this scene that Jesus appears again and he says, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. So Jesus turns to Thomas. He says, peace be with you. And then he like looks at this guy. He turns to him and he says, put your finger here. See my hands, put your hand and place it in my side. Now we're not told like what happened if these are like scars now or what, I don't know what's going on with these wounds if he can still put his hand inside his side. But Jesus, he doesn't shame him. He doesn't ask Thomas. He's like, what was going through your head, man? When your, your bros right here, like your best friends, they told you that they saw me and you didn't believe. What were you thinking? Jesus knows what Thomas had said. He knows where he had dug in his heels and then he invites him to himself. But after he invites him, he confronts him. You see this? It's gentle, but he confronts him. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. I've shared with many of you that like the last year of my time in seminary, I was tumbling around in all sorts of doubt. Questions like, how can we know that the New Testament accounts are reliable? Like, what about science and like Genesis 1 and 2? Like, doesn't evolutionary psychology like provide a better explanation for the way that we behave and believe? Uh, like, I'd taken a, a trip to train pastors in Nepal and I'm driving through all these small villages where people likely have never heard of the name Jesus and I'm thinking what are these people? What are these people that are, have never heard the name of Jesus and are not, are not believing? This doesn't seem right. I'm tumbling around in doubt. It was a dark year. It was a dark year that was not only filled with doubt but it was then even on top of that burdened with shame. Here I am. I'm a, I'm a seminary student. I'm training to become a pastor I'm supposedly supposed to be leading my wife and loving the Lord and growing in our, in our faith in him. And here I am wondering if God even exists. So I didn't talk about it with anybody for like nine months. But I've, I finally shared this with my pastor, Pastor Mark. And Mark and I began to read some books and we prayed together and he was really patient with me and thoughtful and um, just careful with me. He invited good questions. He gave good answers. And to this day, I'm, I'm so thankful for Mark. I think if it weren't for him, I don't know where I would have ended up. And I'm thankful 
that in today's evangelicalism, like, doubt isn't something that typically stays in the dark. Sometimes it does. But 10 years later, 10 years after where I was in seminary, people seem to be much more open today than they were then. Even sharing, like, spiritual explorations and, like, really deep and struggling, difficult questions on social media for all to see. But here's what finally lifted me out of my constant questioning and cynicism. There was some patience there from Mark. There was some good thoughtfulness there from Mark. But ultimately what lifted me out of doubt and cynicism was confrontation. I was out walking my Great Dane one day. Earbuds in, listening to Tim Keller uh, talking about faith and doubt. And Keller was explaining how he loves to hear stories of people who were former agnostics, atheists, how they've come to faith and why. And he says, like, you never hear of someone coming to faith because of, like, the cosmological argument, argument for God's existence or the teleological argument for God. Anybody become, become a Christian because of the teleological argument for God's existence? No one? Okay. Uh, people come to faith, Keller was arguing, when they come to a reckoning a reckoning that all of us as humans intuitively know that God exists and because he exists, my life is accountable to him. This is like a first order belief that every human has. But because we don't like what that means for our lives, because that is a traumatic, traumatic thing to be confronted with, and that means that I will, if God exists and my life is accountable to him, I am no longer allowed to live my life however I'd like without accountability. Then I come up with some second order kind of belief that can then smother or drown out this first order belief that God exists and my life is accountable. The second order kind of belief might be that God doesn't exist at all. I can come up and convince myself of this. Or that I can make up some other kind of God of my own choosing, a God in my own image, just a God of love that will just allow me to live my life however I'd like so that I'm not accountable to him. And as he's, he's talking through these kinds of things, it's just like Tim Keller, the Holy Spirit, all of it, uh, my great Dane beside me, I'm like pinned to the wall. And I was like, that's it. Bingo. The biggest problem in my life isn't questions of evolutionary psychology. The biggest questions in my life is I want to live however I'd like. And I really wish God didn't exist. And it pinned me to the wall. And as I was walking with my great Dane there, I was like, but God, I do know that you are real. Intuitively, and in the world around me, I see your power. I've come to believe that this Bible is unbelievably beautiful and coherent and explanatory, and the gospel is the truest story that I could ever believe, and no human could have made it up. I'm sorry for trying to smother you out with excuses like evolutionary psychology. Because here's the thing about doubt. On the one hand, I'm so glad that it's become fair game to talk about and to be open about. I've had so many conversations with many of you in my living room and over coffee about your own questions. Praise God, I'm so thankful that so many of you are so thoughtful. But on the other hand, I'm getting a little nervous that doubt is being almost lifted up and celebrated within evangelicalism. We think that 
Claiming something with certainty sounds arrogant. I mean, how can we even know anything for certain at all anyway? So it seems to, I think we've begun to believe, that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes something with confidence and with certainty. So when we have days or weeks of difficulty or of doubt, wrestling, struggling, instead of us hearing the words of Jesus coming to us in confrontation of do not disbelieve, but believe, Instead, we think, well, that sounds really overconfident and dogmatic, doesn't it? If surely, if Jesus was around today and could have had another go at it, he would have said something like what I've read one guy say, do not only believe, but disbelieve, for that is truly authentically human. We think, I need to wrestle and struggle and find it ongoingly difficult in my life to believe, or else it can't be really real. So hear me now very clearly, like with as much humility and with much empathy and compassion as I can possibly muster. You don't need to wrestle. You don't need to doubt. With humility here, you need to repent of your unbelief. I say that with compassion and empathy because I want to think through these things with you. I want to read books with you and think through these questions and to pray and cry with you for you not to be intellectually lazy, to ask questions and try to seek answers. But at the root level, like it was for me, your unbelief is just a cover, a cover for your wishing that God doesn't exist or that he's not good or that he's not trustworthy or whatever it may be so that you don't have to obey him. And that's not something to celebrate, is it? Skepticism and doubt pretends to be humble. But it's really just pride in sheep's clothing. I will not believe until I am adequately satisfied, says Thomas and says us, like the arbiter of all that is good and right and true in the universe. What pride that is! But as the man says in other gospel accounts, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. That's an entirely different thing. That's coming from a place of honest humility that expects an answer without making demands of the creator of the universe that you satisfy my every question. So back to John 20. Jesus invites Thomas He confronts Thomas, and he even invites him to see and feel the wounds which bled for Thomas. And then Thomas, seemingly without even touching his hands in his side, he doesn't need to touch, he made these demands, and now he no longer needs them satisfied. He just exclaims, my Lord and my God. The man of obstinate and dug-in belief gives the highest utterance of praise in this entire gospel. So a question for us is, can you say this? With Thomas, can you say this about Jesus? Maybe you believe that Jesus is the Lord of all things. Maybe you believe that he is God. He's like the second person of the Trinity. But even still, even believing that, you couldn't join in with Thomas because you couldn't say, my Lord and my God. 
And this is where John really wants to confront us on belief and unbelief. Not just that we're able to agree with or check a box on some philosophical or theological principle that he is a Lord or a God, but he is mine. Not just that we are able to ace a theology exam on God's glory or on the divinity of Christ or the Trinity or any of these things, to have the right thoughts on evolution or culture around us or whatever it is, but that when I wake up in the morning and when I go to sleep, when I read the Bible and come and gather with God's people, even singing songs about Jesus, that I can actually say, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus personally, for me, not hypothetically, not I believe that it is sweet for that person over there to believe in Jesus, but that it is sweet for me. That he is the supreme authority and commander of my life. He is the shepherd of my life and I am following him. He has forgiven me of my sins, redeemed me as part of his people. He has lived for me and died for me, and now my whole life is his. There's not like rooms in the house of my life that I have locked off and quarantined that he's not allowed to go in, but that increasingly so, I want him to come into all parts of my life, flooding the darkness with light to transform all of me because he is my Lord and my God. Demons believe that he is Lord, that he is God, but he is not theirs. They have belief, perhaps, like many of you have belief. But it is not transformative faith. It is not belief in Christ so that your life now makes no sense apart from the empty tomb. But even then, after Thomas gives this exclamation of newfound faith. Jesus challenges Thomas and then speaks into the future. In verse 29, he said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's coming a day very soon that Thomas will no longer see Jesus. And there's coming a day very soon where no follower of Jesus will have ever seen his resurrection glory. All of us, will be like Thomas on that first night, hearing credible eyewitness testimony that he is alive, and then having to decide. Thomas's faith was anchored to his sight, which was commendable, right? How many times in this gospel account have we seen someone see Jesus's power and his glory and then yet not believe? So it's good that he's seen and believed But here we are 2,000 years later and the risen Christ is urging you. Urging you. Believe without seeing. Don't turn your brain off and believe something that is irrational or even unlikely but something that you've never seen. The risen Lord Jesus. That Jesus is alive. None of us, none of us have seen him alive. So do not disbelieve, but believe. John has spent 20 chapters, and we up until this point have spent 35 weeks thinking through what it means to see Jesus, to believe him, and to follow him. And so here, in verses 30 and 31, John is going to tell us 
Here's the point, everybody. Not that you would learn some interesting things of theology. Not that you would uh, just know some Bible stories so that you're more culturally savvy and aware. But verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That all of us, like Thomas, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not just in a propositional, yeah, like, I can, I actually think that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, or the kind of belief that we can have in him that actually has no transformative effect in our life. Like, I believe in unicorns or the Bigfoot, right? The Bigfoot? Just Bigfoot. That's his name, right? Yeah. Bigfoot, I believe that he exists and I can believe that with my whole heart and that wouldn't change one thing about my life tomorrow, would it? That's not the kind of belief that John wants us to enter into, but the kind of fixed and confident hope that brings life in his name. Like we're not just playing religion here. Do you guys realize that? We're not just saying Yeah, you should uh, become a member of a church and you should go to a church gathering on Sunday, maybe get involved in a small group. It'd be really good if you could start reading your Bible and praying, uh, perhaps even obeying God and denying your flesh. That'd be really good. We're not playing. We're not just developing some habits so that we can like uh, have some sense of like inclusion and meaning in our life. But that God is really real. And that Jesus is really real and that he has risen from the grave and is now reigning over the universe and he demands our lives. And that he has come to save us and forgive us and to adopt us into his family. That's not a game. That's eternity. He hasn't just come to give us a future heaven by like clearing our names on some legal technicality. But he has come to bring us eternity in the family of God, which begins today on into eternity. Not just a future reality, but now. And he's come to bring that life and abundant joy now. The resurrection of Jesus in John's entire gospel account comes to us tonight in a room that is full of unbelief. The resurrection confronts all kinds of unbelief. Beginning with myself, oftentimes not believing God's promises to hear my prayers and to respond to my prayers. The kind of unbelief that I often have of not believing his love for me and waffling and second guessing or not believing that obedience actually means joy and that sin actually means emptiness and dissatisfaction. That's difficult for me to believe. For others, you might be thinking, I do believe, but it's, it's just hard. It's hard. Life is difficult, and it is hard to trust his promises when the punches, they just keep coming. It's hard. Well, to myself and to you, don't just hear me yelling up here like, repent, you doubter. But also hear the words of Puritan Thomas Watson, who says, a weak faith can lay hold on a strong Christ. Peace be with you. It's because of that that we often sing, when I fear my faith will fail. 
Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Our doubt is not something to be celebrated. But a Christ who is patient and stronger than our doubt is. So perhaps you're here tonight and you're adamant in your unbelief. You absolutely do not call yourself a Christian and you're here because of like family or cultural expectations. Perhaps your worldview is today where mine was. It was mine, mine, mine was teetering toward this kind of worldview a decade ago. That of there is no God and I hate him. Well know this. I'm, I'm not sure who all of you are but we're praying for you. We're praying for you as your pastors and we're praying, we even prayed for you before this service. I'm hoping that the reality of the resurrection has perhaps just put a pebble in your shoe that you wouldn't ignore, but that you would confront and do business with. We'd love to chat with you tonight or after the service or during, during, the, during the week. But maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, but you're really searching. You're really wrestling through what it might mean to give your entire life to Christ. Maybe you still have lots of questions, but you've become convinced that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And now what does that mean? Well, friend, let tonight be the night of repentance. Let tonight be the night that you say to the Lord Jesus who hears you and who is inviting you, Jesus, I have lived my life far too long in minimizing ignoring or just flat out opposing you. I'm no longer the ultimate sovereign over my life and I have wronged you and ignored you for far too long. Forgive me of my sin and save me by your cross. If that's the case, let me leave you with a reflection from one of my favorite books, a book called A Severe Mercy. The author had been a graduate student at Oxford in the 50s and through getting to know several Christians, through getting, getting to know an Oxford professor by the name of C.S. Lewis, and through reading the Bible a few times, he wrote this. He says, there is a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky and I got none of these. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. It was a question of whether I was going to accept him or reject him. But my God, there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no absolute certainty that Christ was God, but there was no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it and I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. There's a gap ahead, certainly. And to that I'd say, do not disbelieve, but believe. But friend, there is a gap behind as well. And to know everything that you know, if you've been with us for several months through this gospel of John, and to still reject Jesus is no small thing. Throw yourself onto the strong arms of a good shepherd 
who is inviting you into the family of God, who is wanting to give you the very life and spirit of God that you may have peace. I'm hopeful and confident that his resurrection will continue to confront in us all our sadness, our fear, and our unbelief. Let's pray that it would. Our Father, what mercy you have shown us. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Forgive our unbelief, Father. Forgive our arrogant and prideful demands that you satisfy our every question. Humble us, Lord, we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life lived for us, for your death on our behalf and your resurrection life, which you are giving to us even now. Thank you for, our, thank, thank you for your patience with us, for your faithfulness to your promises, for your faithfulness to us despite our faithlessness. Lift our eyes, Lord Jesus, we pray. Fill us by your spirit. Might you breathe on us and continue to fill us with a spirit that gives us peace, which gives us courage, and which gives us increasing faith so that we might believe all that you have said through your word and by your spirit, we pray. Amen.